Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, and please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. If you're interested in our merch, we have merch, our niche legend dad hat, our mere superstar tee. You can go to poppantheonpod.com and hit the merch store link. And I also want to say that my queer pop party in LA is having its latest installment. This is Gorgeous Gorgeous on March 25th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles, which is free for patrons who join Pop Pantheon All Access, our Patreon channel at the Icon Status tier, and is available as a ticketed event for anybody who's listening who wants to come out. If you're queer, if you enjoy pop music, if you're a queer ally, which I'm, again, assuming includes everybody that listens to this show. See you at Gorgeous Gorgeous on March 25th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. The ticket link will be in the show notes of this episode. And speaking of Patreon, we're also doing a Miley Cyrus Endless Summer Vacation listening party tonight on Discord when the album drops at midnight. If you are interested in listening with a group of other pop fanatics who love talking shit and getting into the weeds about all this i'll be there we're gonna put the album on in like the group spotify setting or whatever and all listen to endless summer vacation together for the first time so if you are a patron and you want to be part of that and you're not in the discord yet join the discord that's where we're going to be chatting tonight and if you're not a patron and you want to participate in that you can go to patreon.com to sign up also you'll get access to all our bonus episodes etc etc so i'll see you guys at the miley cyrus endless summer vacation listening party later tonight that's at midnight eastern and nine pacific I also just wanted to say quickly that today's episode is coming out one day after the two-year anniversary of Pop Pantheon. We've been making the show for two years, or I've been, and Russ for the last year or so. So I just wanted to thank every single person from the bottom of my heart for listening to the show. It's mind-blowing to me what this has become. The fact that I get to have this conversation every single week with so many incredible people and that there's so many people out there listening to it. I I mean, it's it's not lost on me and I just am completely blown away by the entire thing. And I really appreciate each and every one of you. I appreciate everybody that's spread the word about the show, told their friends, evangelized about it. I know I get a lot of messages about that. I tell all my friends, it shows. And I really, really appreciate all of the dedicated niche legends that have listened to the show from the beginning and everyone that's joined recently. I just, it's the whole thing has been completely mind blowing and just one of the greatest experiences of my life. And it wouldn't be possible without all of you listening. So thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the show. And of course, I want to especially thank our patrons who have come on board to support the show in that way. Thank you so much for supporting us and looking forward to so many more years of this weird little project. So thank you. Thank you. Can't believe we made it to this point. This episode is a B-side about the idea of poptimism. So you guys know I like to use these B-sides to like flesh out ideas that come up a lot on main episodes of the show and that we don't have time in those main episodes to really like get into the weeds about and poptimism or the idea in music critical discourse that pop music should be taken seriously and evaluated as a serious art form and something that kind of emerged against the ideas of rockism, i.e. criticism that assigned specific value to certain ideals of rock music of the 60s and 70s in particular. And 
we talk about poptimism a lot. I mean, this entire podcast could be framed as a poptimistic exercise, but I wanted to get into the weeds about this topic. So we were doing some research trying to figure out who should be a guest to talk about that. I wanted to lay out the history of it. I wanted to talk about how it's evolved. And I wanted to possibly talk about how the ideas have either curdled or perhaps become less useful to us in the way that pop music and pop music critical discourse has evolved over the last 15 years. And I stumbled on an article by our guest today that he actually wrote in college. He's now a Vulture staff writer. And so I invited Jason P. Frank from Vulture onto the show to lay out the history of poptimism, what it means, how it arose, how it was reacting against rockism, how it disseminated through pop culture, what the major sort of albums that calcified our ideas or artists that calcified our ideas of poptimism were, and some interesting ideas about why he feels like the idea of poptimism has become irrelevant or somewhat outlived its time with us. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jason P. Frank of Vulture. All right, so I'm here with staff writer at Vulture, Jason P. Frank. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. We were planning to do this episode. Poptimism is a topic that comes up on this podcast a lot. And I was doing some Googling and I was reading (laughs) the myriad of pieces that have been written about this subject over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. And I found a piece that you actually wrote in college that was about the obsolete nature of the term in your estimation as things stand in the pop landscape today. And I thought it was a very, very compelling argument. And so I'm so glad to have you here to talk about the history of this word and also why you think we need to get rid of it as a concept moving forward, if that is indeed what you think. Yeah, yeah. I would encourage everybody listening to not go read that essay and instead just (laughs) listen to this this podcast where I'm sure I will have more compelling and better stated arguments, not to toot my own horn. I like to think I've grown since college. (laughs) I'm thrilled that the SEO on my college newspaper was good enough that you found me. I mean, (laughs) whether you think you stated it well or not, I think you stated it very well, but I'm just going to say that I thought it was very well laid out in terms of the way that pop music and the way that we consume pop music and thus the way that like pop stardom exists in the world now makes it such that these sort of tenets of poptimism as they were needed or necessary when the term came into being now feels out of whack with just the entire nature of music and music consumption and thus music criticism at this point. So I I'm excited to help people kind of understand the term a little bit before we break down why you think it's whack at this point, but also to get into some of the ways that pop music and pop stardom has changed and thus affected the usefulness of this term. So before we get into talking about your piece, I'm curious if you could just help kind of like in broad strokes lay out for the audience, like why this term came into being and how this term came into being. So let's start with why. Why was there a need for poptimism in the pre-poptimism era? I think it's important to understand that poptimism wasn't really created as a framework in and of itself. It was created in response to a different previously existing framework, which was called rockism. Like one of the urtexts of poptimism is an article by Kelefosane of the New York Times, which didn't mention poptimism at all. Rather, it railed against rockism. So rockism came about when people considered popular music, not pop music specifically as we think of it now as a genre, but pop music as all collections of music that aren't basically jazz or classical, 
when people didn't think of those as high art. So in response to that, critics at the time created a kind of like high-low version of pop music, which elevated rock music and what we would think of as now as like dad music as this <laughs> like version of popular music that could be considered artistically viable, could be worth critiquing as art, could be worth considering as art at all. Mm. And so that was developed really, I think, like late 70s, early 80s, those critics created that. There was value in rockism then. And then in 2004, Kelifa wrote this article for the Times railing against rockism, saying that specifically because rock as a genre at the time was on its way out and being replaced by rap, by hip hop, by pop and by R&B. At the time, mm -hmm. all of those things were all included in poptimism. After Kelifa's article came out, there was this idea that kind of sprung forth from it. And in association with that, also Carl Wilson's Let's Talk About Love caused yep. this. But there was a lot of critical discourse at the time that centered around this idea that we should consider pop music and pop music now, meaning what we think of as pop, also hip hop, also R&B, also rap music. We should consider this as artistically valuable as rock music. So kind of doing the same right. thing that rockism did back in the early days. And not simply right. elevate rock to this heightened prestige level by nature of its genre. Right. And I think another important element of this is that rockism as an idea was not just about rock music, but sort of very particular tenets of rock music. So right. there were ideas inherent in there about the singer-songwriter, about socio-political intent, about the long player album, about concept albums, about sort of seriousness, weightiness, like rebelliousness. There were all of these ideas that were inherent to rockism that were sort of like, if your music contains these ideas, it's of value and otherwise it's of less value somehow. And that even extended, I think, in the late 80s and the term rockism, to my understanding, came into being kind of in the early 80s yeah. when rock music kind of bifurcated into sort of like classic rock or like the rock that you might have referred to as dad rock, i.e. all of the sort of venerated artists of the 60s and 70s from Bob Dylan to the Beatles to Led Zeppelin whomever and rock also started to take on some synthetic elements in the 1980s as part of new wave as part of post-punk so the term rockism at that point became about like delineating two forms of rock music like what is credible rock music and what is sort of fluffier pop driven rock music so the other element that I think is important to lay out here is that the critical community for most of pop history and through pretty much the present day more than we would like is dominant by the opinions of white males. So a lot of what went on in rockism also had to do with homophobia, sexism, racism. You can see this very clearly, I think, in the backlash to disco in the late 70s, where basically disco was seen as frivolous, stupid, ephemeral dance music that had no value and was quite literally and violently ended by... Yeah, the Disco Sucks movement. Right, know. the Disco Sucks movement that held rockist, essentially, ideals. So I think that those are also just important elements for people to understand about, like, kind of the rockist concept. And that was the sort of lingua franca of critical discourse, like, through the mid-2000s, was that essentially, like, particular brand of rock music and singer-songwriter style, instrument playing, weighty topics, is what made music work 
worth criticizing or having critical discourse over and everything else was seen as commercial fluff that had no value or that commercial fluff, even if it is commercial fluff, has no yeah. value. You know the what I mean? The word so, that I think we should throw into the mix here is the critical canon. I think canon right. as an idea and what we canonize and what we add to our list of specifically the greatest albums of all time list, I think is by Rolling Stone, the 500 greatest right. albums of all time. Is It's specifically the different versions of it are often looked at as a barometer of where rockism and poptimism are at at various points mm. in time, probably rightly so from an anthropological level, uh, whether or not you agree with it critically or even agree with the idea of it existing mm. is another conversation. But from an anthropological level, I think that the, that list is important in understanding where the critical canon was at and who is being allowed in and also who is doing the allowing, which you pointed to earlier. Yeah, 100%. And obviously Rolling Stone being one of the earliest iterations of music criticism as we know it today stands or did stand at that time not anymore obviously as an emblem of these rockist ideals in many ways and yeah. that list I mean I remember the early iterations of that list and looking through them all and seeing like none of the music that I grew up on basically like being celebrated in any form or fashion like I remember the top 25 records being all records from like the 60s and 70s you know in the early iterations of this list I don't remember the exact statistics but it would be very shocking, I think, for someone that wasn't familiar with the way that that list looked before uh, with how it looks now. And I still think when you look at that list and their updated versions of it, you could still call out some stuff about rockism in that list. But obviously, they've changed a lot in terms of like who's writing for them and how they view music. But I agree, that's a really interesting point about those lists. And they have kept updating them. Yeah, you look at like the first version of it, and I think that yeah. Joni Mitchell's Blue was the highest ranked album by a woman, right. which like, sure, you can absolutely make an argument that that is the greatest album by a woman of all time. I'm willing to hear that <laughs> argument, but it was 30th, right? Like in the first version yeah. of that list, it was the highest album ranked by a woman was received the 30th place. You know, when, when Blue came out, it was Joni was considered more frivolous than her peers. She was considered like, I mean, I don't, prefer to use this comparison, but I think it might be helpful, like the Taylor Swift of her time in that she would, right. like she had all these boyfriends. Taylor Swift would love to hear this. Yeah, Taylor I Swift. Think. I mean, you know the Joni quote where she goes like, oh, Joni, Taylor yes, Swift's going to be playing me in a biopic? Like, good luck if she's going <laughs> to sing it. Uh, and she couldn't sing it. And I'm not comparing the two in terms of talent. I love Taylor. Well, I love some of Taylor. Me too. Uh, but Me too. I do think I'm just, that all I'm the, saying is that Taylor would love that you. Yeah, said yeah. The the boyfriend the boyfriend thing is I think really relevant. If you re go reread the Rolling Stone review of Blue, it's rather dismissive. Yeah. So optimism comes into form, I guess, like in the early 2000s, kind of just like in the music intelligentsia, I guess. In response to this article, you mentioned Carl Wilson's "Let's Talk About Love," which I don't know if you've read this book. If anybody who's listening to this show hasn't read it, it's really an interesting <laughs> thing. I mean, Carl was essentially a critic who held very, very raucous ideals and then sort of took on this question of like, what is taste and what informs taste and used the music of Celine Dion, which he like inherently hated or felt was like completely sort of vapid and empty and commercial driven, valueless music and tried to like force himself to get into it and understand what Celine Dion was doing. Essentially, it's a really interesting book, but I guess what he did there in the project that he sort of inflicted on himself was sort of like as a rock critic trying to open his mind to what we would now think of as like a poptimistic 
outlook on music, essentially. Yeah. Again, I think it's worth noting here. I mean, so so Kalifa's article came out in 2004, and then there's the yeah. 2006 Experience Music Project Pop Conference, which I think is also a valuable term here, which was like a gathering of critics. Like Ann Powers gave a paper, who's now a music critic at NPR, very well respected, one of mm-hmm. our one of our greats. Yes, that sure. conference it boiled down a lot of the ideas around poptimism at the time. You can mm-hmm. look back at Jody Rosen's Slate article, which came out in May of 2006, as a for an understanding of what happened at that conference. By that point, poptimism as a phrase is coined. So between 2004, when Califa's article comes right. out, and 2006, that is when the nascent poptimism comes into being. So like early 2000s, yes, absolutely. But also, it's not fully formed as an idea yet in that time. What it is more so is a response to rockism. Right. Later, it kind of becomes its own ideology, which I think is a little tricky because it's always informed by responding to something else rather than being an ethos of itself. Mm, that's interesting. So can you explain just in like the most basic terms to someone that doesn't understand what poptimism is? What is poptimism exactly? Yeah, I think in the most basic terms, and it doesn't always get used in this way, but it's the idea that all pop music is worthy of critical attention and analysis inherently. Like it's not that Mm -hmm. it, that all pop music is good or that something (laughs) is inherently good because it is popular. It is that no genre is exempt from having value to it and should not be dismissed out of hand. Right. And if this term is coming into usage, as you're saying, kind of in 05, 06, what do you think are particularly important records in a pop sense that sort of crystallize what poptimistic criticism is? Like, are there specific albums from this period where we start to see ideas of poptimism sort of disseminating through the critical discourse and elevating specific pop records or acts in that particular period? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. I'll tell you where my mind went first, and then I'll follow Mm -hmm. that up with something else, which was the first place that my mind went was to Robin's self-titled album, which came out in, I think, 2007? 2005 in Sweden and 2007 in the rest of the world. So that album, I think, is really important as narratively for the idea of pop music specifically, not talking hip hop or rap, anything in that category, which at the time, Poptimism included. We can get to that. I think it kind of doesn't anymore. At the time, Robin was seen as an oddity for having an indie narrative as a person who created pop music. So what Mm -hmm. she did was she left her major label. She started her own label called Konnichiwa Records because her her Mm -hmm. previous label, which I believe was Jive, was trying to turn her into like a Christina Aguilera figure. And she didn't want to do that. She felt like her records were moving her backward artistically as opposed to forward. Then Mm -hmm. she releases her self-titled record, which has some absolute bangers on it and one an absolute 10 out of 10 yeah it's an incredible record it has be mine on it Mm -hmm. which is like maybe Mm -hmm. the greatest pop song of the 2000s but the narrative around her allows her 
to be seen as worthy of critical attention for critics who would not have looked at pop before. When you look at the Mm. writing about her at the time, it's almost apologetic, right? Like it's saying, no, really, like this person actually has cred. She's like a reverse Liz Fair to them, right? Mm. Like, like, (laughs) whereas Liz Fair became this pop figure and sold out, Robin left pop music and decided to go out on her own. And that narrative gave her some kind of credibility that allowed her pop music to be seen as still artistically valuable. She's put it like number 68 on Pitchfork's best albums of the 2000s list with that record. And important to note here that at the time, for anybody that's a more recent Pitchfork convert, Pitchfork did not cover pop music as they do now. Just for everybody's edification, Pitchfork did not review a Taylor Swift album until Reputation. Or at one point, 2001, they reviewed a Kylie Minogue record as a joke. Like the April Fool's joke was the idea that they would review a Kylie Minogue record at all. Right which I think is a really interesting and valuable Mm -hmm. source here because that's like right before Poptimism starts and they give it like normal critical attention. It's just that the joke was that they were considering it at all. Right. A hundred percent, especially considering the connective tissue between Kylie Minogue's sound and Robin's sound. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, influence there. And I think your point about Robin, that was not where my mind went, but this is so important, is that Robin also, I think, helps create the sort of niche pop ecosystem that you're talking about in the contemporary pop space. Like Robin operates in this particular period, as you said, and we covered this on our episode about her, but I think it's worth repeating here. Robin's space in the pop music firmament at this period was so unique. Like it was incredibly hard for us as the music consuming community to think about where she belonged because she made pop music that felt somewhat adjacent to or in conversation with a lot of mainstream pop and yet she operated as an indie act and was viewed as you said as this kind of credible artist in a way that like many of her peers were inherently dismissed and she wasn't that popular and the idea of pop music which is something you also get at in your piece as inherently being the most popular genre of music on earth was something that we really took for granted. And that's also something that begins to sort of like, you know, shift in that period. Again, not fully, but I think right now and like through at least the latter part of the 2010s, that's something that's really been borne out. Like it was a rare moment where somebody was making what we might have thought of as like radio fodder on some level, but that like was not getting any radio attention and yet was able to maintain a successful career in sort of like the outskirts or in the indie scene that was a very novel concept for a pure pop artist at that particular moment pure pop historically was either something that was janet madonna britney biggest thing on earth or you were nothing so she carved out a zone for someone that made that kind of music to exist outside of sort of chart success so i think that that's a really interesting thing the album that came into my mind, and I'm curious what you think about it, is Future Sex Love Sound, yeah. which came out in 06. Here you have an ex-boy bander, and you know, God knows the teen pop boom of the you know late 90s and early 2000s was completely dismissed by critics. I mean, you go back and read criticism of Britney's records in that period, or a lot of those instincts records, even decent reviews of them are like, this is all right for what it is, or you know, are very dismissive of all of that music. And then you have Justin Timberlake 
Timberlake, who creates an incredibly ambitious record, a, an incre you know, a, a challenging in the context of mainstream pop music pop record, but is also like the biggest star in the world. And this album is the biggest thing on earth. And this thing was massively critically embraced and was very, very well reviewed. And the critical discourse around Future Sex Love Sound, I think, created a permission structure for people to be into Justin Timberlake who like weren't into pop. And I remember that from that yeah. time period where it was like, oh, like critics love this record. People think this record has value. And thus like, I'm not really a pop fan, but like Future Sex Love Sounds is great. Like that was a big thing. I can see us holding hands, walking on the beach, our toes in the sand. I can see us on the countryside, sitting on the grassland side by side. And, and this is right around the same period, but I feel yeah. like that also was a manifestation of poptimism or one of the earliest manifestations on a big, broad scale of what poptimism was meant to do, I guess. Yeah, and he also, I think, was uniquely able to interpret black sounds for white audiences and also, to be honest, sounds that were developed mainly since the, like, after the 80s, sounds that were developed yeah. primarily by female artists for audiences that were white and male. So he was he was unique in that way. Other than those records, I would say that at the time it was often more singles that were breaking through mm. the poptimism mold. I think Since You've Been Gone is this huge yes. critical hit because it reinterprets maps by the IIAs. And has big guitars and gestures directly at a lot of rock ideals. At the right, same time right. Too. So it's this pop song that's kind of rockish, that's inspired right. by an indie song. Song. Right. I think there's this narrative around since you've been gone is like, oh wow, like Kelly Clarkson could do that. The record is not really looked at. It's the song. I want to say one thing about that, which I think kind of also connects it to Future Sex Love Sound and sort of creates a bit of a stickier thing here, which is that this is something I can't remember which critic was pointing this out, but I was going back today and reading this. They were sort of talking about the way that like a lot of poptimism gets trapped in its own kind of mm -hmm. version of rockism. Yes. So it's like, since you've been gone, we're still sort of like saying we like that because it's a pop song, as you said, that gestures that kind of rockist ideal. So like that's inherently like kind of a flaw in the idea of like what we're trying to say poptimism should be, which is that it doesn't have to do those things in order to be worthy of being taken seriously. And then connected to Future Sex Love Sound, it's like, yes, Future Sex Love Sound is a synthetic pop album made largely on computers, you know, all the things that rock critics would probably dislike, you know, whatever. It also is in conversation with hip hop ideals. It's working with a hip hop producer, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But it's also this big, broad, ambitious pop album that's supposed like filled with ideas and is supposed to be sort of somewhat challenging or experimental only in a mainstream pop context, but still. So I think both Since You've Been Gone and Future Sex Love Sound both like represent early iterations of like what poptimism could be, but also sort of like are relevant to the idea of like poptimism still sort of like trading in the like language or the ideals of rockism at the same time. Like it still has to have some of these like ideas of what makes makes rock music credible in order to like be pop music that is taken seriously, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the last thing I want to introduce in the section where we're talking about early poptimism is this idea of like the quote unquote, my least favorite phrase, straight men use it all the time when we're talking about pop music, which is like, it's a perfect pop song. Right. <laughs> uh, 
about something that they think is really but has a good hook. It immediately impacts you, but there's no depth to it. And so I think right. like something like I would say like Crazy in Love received that mm. kind of treatment at the time. Yes. It's in the top four of Pitchfork's best songs of the 2000s. It's undeniable. It is yes. a perfect pop song. It's treated in this way of like, not awe at its emotional acuity, but there's a way in which they believe it is operating on a separate rubric that is not quite as valuable as the rock rubric, but can be its own thing, its own value. And that's when you get perfect pop song ideology. Right, it's also sort of insinuating that this type of music is normally not whatever, but mm -hmm. because this just does it so well, I'm powerless against it. It it is the exception to the rule just because of its scientific perfection or something like that. Yes. So then how does the ideas of optimism evolve through the late 2000s, early 2010s? Like how does this idea continue to disseminate and continue to morph and like, How does the critical discourse shift as poptimism becomes more of the norm through the kind of like EDM era of pop and like into the kind of like mid 2010s or so? Yeah, I mean, it starts to become like an all dominating force in critical discourse. Not that everyone agrees with it, but rather that like you can't go anywhere without talking about it. Right. It's it's this like giant thing. Like poptimism is the idea of the 2010s. And mm-hmm. I think the first thing that's worth noting that it does, and probably the reason that we didn't mention any rap albums in our discussion of early poptimism is that it sheds rap. Originally, mm. when Kelifo was writing about it, and originally when I was talking about the Jody Rosen piece before, pop music, as we think of it now, and rap and hip hop were all wrapped up in ideas of poptimism. Like poptimism mm. encompassed all of them. Later, poptimism is still like this big thing and rap albums are still getting critical consideration, but poptimism doesn't include rap albums anymore. Not really. Interesting. I don't think you would consider Pitchfork giving My Beautiful Dark and Twisted Fantasy a 10 a poptimist choice. Mm, Why is that exactly? On a basic level, pop as a genre, due to the fact that we're starting to get more indie people like Robin also making pop music, pop kind Mm -hmm. of calcifies as its own genre in the late 2000s. I think especially with Gaga coming in, pop music exists and pop music is different than hip hop. And then nominally, poptimism is supposed to refer to pop. So you don't have those questions. I also think the question of good rap music being good is solved a little bit earlier than pop music. Whether or not you think that the critical idea of what good rap music is, is good, it gets considered to be able to be good earlier. Like that happens. I agree. I I agree because I think that there's values of sort of like technical skill or whatever Mm -hmm. that are more legible to the white male critics that are writing about this in that time period. Like I remember there being rapturous critical response to like Jay-Z's The Blueprint or to like Biggie's Ready to Die or Illmatic. And I also remember it around the clips Mm-hmm. And all of these rap groups in the early 2000s that were, you know, seen as incredible records or achievements. But I think Kanye is a really interesting figure here yeah. because Kanye and, I, and I'm interested in what you were saying about my beautiful dark twisted fantasy because, you know, Kanye is also someone that speaks to a lot of raucous ideals despite the fact that he's a rapper. I mean, he's mm-hmm. seen as this vi- from the beginning as this visionary auteur who makes these very large in scope statement records that are, in, as I said, 
that legible to the ideas of like what rock critics think has value. And I think My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is actually a really instructive and interesting counterpoint to another record that came out that year that I think the critical discourse around continues to reflect how Poptimism still hadn't quite taken full root or still was kind of on wobbly legs, which is Katy Perry's Teenage, Teenage Dream. Dream. I was like, are you going to say Teenage Dream? Yes. Yes, because, yeah. you know, it's interesting because now in our current discourse, we look back on Teenage Dream in the sort of like baked in Poptimism discourse that we all sort of speak in at this point as this masterpiece, right? Everybody thinks about it now as like this album that had, you know, seven huge songs on it and is just one of the greatest iterations of pure pop, whatever, which is also incorrect, by the way. But let's yeah. just like say that that. Yeah, we can I think Teenage that, Dream is a real victim of perfect pop song. Yeah, perfect pop song. Total perfect pop song discourse. But I, what I want to say that I think is interesting is that that record was savaged by critics yeah. when it came out. I mean, it was absolutely, I mean, we did episodes on her recently. So I went back and read a bunch of these. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much these reviews reminded me of the reviews of the sort of early 2000s sort of Britney pop wave. Mm -hmm. They were just as dismissive, really, really, really sexist. So as much as Poptimism feels like it had taken root at that point, I still feel like it's still giving credit. And I think we could point to this even with like the way that critics like fawn all over the Beyonce records, which deserve them in this period as well, like her self-title record, Lemonade, whatever. Like we're still dealing with the fact that like the music critical discourse still feels like it's rewarding ideas that make pop, rap, whatever we're dealing with that isn't traditional rock, that is still hitting the marks that traditional rockism sort of wants them to. That's yeah. one thing that I was thinking about. I mean, I would contrast Katie here with Gaga at the time, who, right. I mean, at that point, Gaga had not released art pop, which means that the critics hadn't really turned on her yet. Right. At the very least, not every critic loved Gaga, but they all took her seriously. Especially by the time we hit the fame monster, I remember there was like a sort of like, whoa, this is act this is actually good is another sort of version of perfect pop song. To right, me. yeah. I think she was really explicitly at the time trading in not rock ideas, but ideas of the auteur. Yes, and that she had serious ideas. She had big ideas going yeah, on, you know. Absolutely, and Katy didn't really do that. That wasn't the Katy Perry goal. I think part of the issue no. With Katie now is that she never really, as an artist, carved out an auteurist identity. She was no. she was primarily no. a singles artist and a, and a very successful one. That's what makes her interesting, I think, in the context yeah. of what we're talking about right now, which is that that was still not seen as valuable by the critical discourse in 2010. Like the fact that Katy Perry just made kind of fluffy, commercial-driven, perfect pop songs, as you were saying, was reason for derision, essentially, like in the critical discourse. And the pop music that was being rewarded with critical raves in this period are things like Kanye, which is laden with a lot of rockist ideals, and things mm -hmm. like Gaga, where she is very explicitly presenting her music as something that is like, has massive ideas and meanings behind it and has a lot of ambitious scope going on. So that was just interesting to me looking back at it. We're still not really achieving what I think Poptimism's goal would be, which is to be that even if Katy Perry is making commercial missiles cravenly, we should still be taking it seriously. 
Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And then by the end of the 2010s, which we yeah. should talk through now, yeah. the perfect pop song thing has really developed, I think, especially critically post-emotion to be able to include Katy Perry. And so she ends up making a lot right. of best end lists. Emotion is such an interesting turning point for this too. I mean, I was going to say we shouldn't just not talk about Taylor, who I think is another oh, artist yeah. that maybe fits into the Kanye mold here, which is that she's a pop star, but she has singer-songwriter bona fides. Her music up to a certain point has guitars. There's a yeah, lot of- Yeah, Speak like, Now of... is a total raucist move to be like, I'm going to write this whole album by myself. It's a total raucist move. Right, right. But 2014 feels like an important moment, 2014, 2015, because mm-hmm. you have 1989, and at that point she's in Raptured the critical community so much that they're willing to go with her into the synthetic pop world with mm-hmm. Max Martin, etc. So you've got 1989 getting sort of a massive critical embrace, of course, even though it is a more, much more pure pop record or whatever. All of her records are, this is so sticky, but no, it all is her a, records it, are pure pop. It's a synth pop record, yeah. She ditches a lot of the sort of rockist ideals that had powered the critical embrace of her early work, right? So you've got that. So at that point, that's what I see as like, okay, Poptimism has fully taken hold of the discourse and we're now willing to say that Blank Space and Shake It Off and all these songs are incredible despite the fact that they don't hold up on these rockist ideals necessarily. And then you have Emotion, which I think is another really, I'm glad you brought that up because here you have an absolute unabashed pure pop record that is not espousing any sort of grandiose rockist ideals, but is also a critical embrace and like is also the cool kids pop album at the same time. So that also feels important to me. That album to me is really interesting in this context because it's embraced by two separate communities that I think are really interesting to talk about in this sense. It's mm-hmm. it's embraced by the queer community who love mm-hmm. it because they're like, oh, it all should have been hits. Like we love this record and they love pure <laughs> pop to begin with. And then it's right. embraced by straight men really intensely. You have Max mm. Landis's 150 page essay about the album, which comes out and is incredibly <laughs> annoying. <laughs> It's the encapsulation of like, it's a perfect pop song discourse from that group of people to me. It's the writing about it from that group is often bad, to be honest, like to be, to be perfectly (laughs) honest. It's, it's talking about her as if she is breaking boundaries as opposed to expertly existing within a mold that already exists, which is her goal was that, right? Like her goal was to make pop music that was good and she did it. And the idea of poptimism in its ideal form is that it shouldn't have to to be breaking boundaries or doing any of these particular raucous moves in order to be valuable. That is the whole idea. Right. And I I mean, if I were to proffer one critique of Carly, I would say that part of the reason that she gets lauded in this way by straight men is that she doesn't maybe, number one, she is no longer popular, right? Like emotion doesn't <laughs> do well. So they there's a certain amount of like indie credit that you can get. Like you feel cool for saying, actually, she's the heir actually, to the Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's three people in this time and they all hit very different notes. 
notes it's it's charlie it's tubelu it's yeah. carly mm-hmm. who all yes. like hit the exact they all follow robin's career path right exactly but what carly does is she doesn't really trade in complex emotion she no. gives <laughs> a really intense version of joy specifically that that's what she does most successfully probably with with something mm-hmm. like run away with me and so that's really legible as a good version of pop to someone who doesn't listen to pop because it's oh it's mm-hmm. the stereotype of pop right like it's this like mm-hmm. big bubblegummy exciting record that is so easy to understand as a good pop record it's not asking mm-hmm. a lot of its listener i don't think that's a bad thing but i do think there's a reason that emotion specifically receives this kind of critical adoration so in the post sort of emotion let's say like 2015 through 2018 19 how does poptimism continue to evolve and maybe in your vision start to kind of become useless i guess like what's the evolution of or the denouement of poptimism in your mind yeah i mean i think that number one we start to ask too much of it because it's been this big thing for so long, there is an assumption, a wrongful one, I think, on the part of critics that it has an e- a central ethos when it it mm, it's not a right. lens through which you can analyze music because all mm. it's saying is that this deserves to be analyzed to begin with it's a movement that exists in opposition to a separate movement which did have ideals mm-hmm. whether or not right. i agree with the rockets movement which i don't uh spoiler <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh I, I know everyone's shocked yeah at i home. know i know right uh my <laughs> yeah people heard my voice and they were like wow this, this guy really <laughs> seems to like some rolling stones uh but there's an idea behind rockism. There is less of an mm. idea behind poptimism. Mm-hmm. And so what you end up with is people treating Teenage Dream, the album, as a masterpiece. Right. Because, which, which, which it's not. Because that's what poptimism is, I guess. Right? Like, if there's no right. understanding of what it is, there's no lens through which you're actually looking. And so what it ends up being is in that time, it just boils down into this idea that pop is good, Mm. which some pop is good, but that's not a lens through which to look at music. I think an important aspect of what you're bringing into the conversation here that we should maybe lay down here yeah. is stan culture and oh, yeah. the way in which critics and their reviews become incredibly important to these sort of stan armies on the internet has had a massive effect i feel like on some of the changes that you're talking about in terms of like kind of the way that optimism has spoiled because it starts to feel like at a certain point and i don't know if that if you agree with this idea but that like a lot of music criticism starts to sort of spill into standing maybe out of yeah. fear of of retribution from the stan armies online maybe because a generation of stands have grown into being music critics i don't know exactly what it is like what the forces are exactly but there is a certain period where it starts to feel like there's very little actual music criticism going on and there's a lot of just kind of like blind or immediate embrace of every major pop album as some sort of masterpiece i mean it's something that we see in terms of like the way that reviews get published super fast they have to respond really quickly people don't have time to absorb and listen to records in the way that they used to but there does start to be this feeling that i have and i this is just kind of like experiential for me where a lot of music criticism doesn't feel like it's addressing pop music seriously it feels like it is just sort of heaping praise onto every major pop record that comes out at a certain point yeah and that's how you end up with like a flaccid limp non-interesting album like midnight's getting called right. instant classic right thank you jason yeah, thank you sorry. jason for validating uh, all of it. my opinions yeah, about yeah. Midnight's. or it's something like you <laughs> yes. end up with something like the 2020 rolling stone list which has 
perfunctory inclusions of Selena Gomez's album Rare on it, much mm-hmm. higher than something like How I'm Feeling Now by Charlie, which is right. a much better album, <laughs> obviously. Like, like I mean, I, yeah, like I can, I mean, we can get into that, but that's not really the topic of conversation. You'll just have to take my word for it. <laughs> we'll do another episode that's you contrasting How I'm Feeling Now and Rare. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, yes, I would love to be there for that. <laughs> okay. But you end up with them putting that much higher than How I'm Feeling Now or like Sawayama, I believe, because there's like a place on their list for pop music. Like you can just sense mm-hmm. that this is where the pop music goes, which is really, I think, an uninteresting way to look at music criticism of pop music, because that is when pop music good becomes your idea around reviewing pop music. Just like, oh, the popular music is the good music. And that's not the work of a critic. Right. And also there's a calcification, I think, around like the pop stars that the critical community has chosen to embrace. Taylor Swift being, I think, the most obvious example of this. Like she yeah. she is calcified into this sort of artist that everything she does is like fascinating and amazing as an idea. And I think that there's been a lack of accountability to sort of like take a step back and like wonder about whether this music is good. Like if you listened to Midnight's and it wasn't Taylor, right? And it wasn't, there wasn't all of this like meaning and grandiosity attached to every single Taylor Swift project. And she wasn't seen as this generational artist. Like how would you actually view this record? One thing that I want to ask you about, which is you laid out in your piece that I think is really interesting is we talked about Robin as kind of like a total black sheep in the pop landscape in 20. 06, right? Like at that point, there wasn't this idea of like the niche pop star. Now, as is discussed on this podcast, fucking ad nauseum. Literally every pop star is a niche pop star. I mean, Robin is version of pop stardom is like the most influential version of pop stardom that has existed in the modern era. I mean, you have beginning, I believe, kind of like with Lana Del Rey being like another huge inflection point on this journey. Yeah. You have, and Lord, you have massive, but Lord had hit, like, like at some point, felt like a more conventional pop star. Yeah. But Lana, building on what Robin did, but even bigger than Robin, was someone that like completely did not do any of the concessions towards, you know, mainstream pop appeal, makes her art little art weird albums and somehow turns herself into like an arena touring pop star in the process with having basically no radio hits aside from like a remix of one of her songs and whatever, and like is able to maintain that for like 10 years. That is very unique. Now, I feel like we're in an era where like almost every pop star kind of does that. It's like they're operating in varying size, sometimes quite massive silos where they can communicate directly with their fans. They don't need radio hits like they used to. Pop stardom doesn't churn on a hit parade in the same way that it used to for many stars. For some it does, right? So you've got like Billie Eilish, biggest pop star on earth. Does Billie Eilish need to have a hit parade of radio singles to have that pop stardom? No. She can literally just make her music and like give it to her fans and that's it you don't have that kind of monocultural sort of necessity that pop stardom used to sort of churn on so you talked about that in your piece how has that affected the usefulness of optimism in your mind well it's kind of declared it irrelevant there was a reason that robin was the first i think like major straight pop star and straight through just doing bubblegum pop that was accepted and it's because she was like an indie artist at the time right and now that is the primary delivery system 
for that kind of bubblegum pop. We don't really have that mm-hmm. on the charts. That kind of quote unquote easily dismissible music, even the Katy Perry's of the world, yeah. like she's have hits. Like nobody is having hits with bubblegum. The closest no. we get is like, I guess, Pink Panthers right now. I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah. But even she is sort of like dealing with, at least in terms of like her like allusions to hyper pop or whatever, are like still bringing in ideas that feel like challenging in a way that I think critics might not think Teenage Dream was. Or Reinterpreting whatever. UK Garage in an interesting way. Anyway, right. but bubblegum doesn't exist. It's not a dominating force. Poptimism comes out, I think this is relevant, right out of the Britney era. It came into being partly because bubblegum needed a critical lens to be looked at with. Like this yes. was something that was existing. It was a dominating force. Now we don't have it. So when you talk about like, oh, are, are you going to write in a poptimist way? Mm. There, there's no real need for it because like, are you going to write in a poptimist way about like Sophie? Is that what you're trying? Right. Like, is that a possibility? Mm. I guess it is because Sophie is nominally creating pop music, right? Like, mm-hmm. or she she did. But to not take that critically seriously is a joke. And I don't think anyone ever did. I don't think that was an issue we had to fight against. Right. And remember, Poptimism is created to fight against people not taking something seriously. And no right, one right. is not taking Sophie seriously. That would be ridiculous. They would be out of a job. So it's like, you're just basically saying it's achieved its ends, essentially. I mean, sure. I don't think that is universally true that everyone is a poptimist. I think that there mm-hmm. are writers who take pop music seriously at every major publication. I think that that's yes. true. I think that mm-hmm. there are issues with the way that pop music is covered, but those issues cannot be solved by our idea of optimism anymore. Like, Poptimism is no longer going to solve the issue of Selena Gomez's rare being higher <laughs> than Charlie XCX is how I'm feeling now on that list. Like, that is considered a Poptimist move. So what we conceptually think of as Poptimism now doesn't have a place because it's no longer, or it never really was, a framework that can do good for our criticism. Mm. The best Poptimist review, to my way of thinking, of the past few years has been Shad D'Souza's review of Sigrid's album for Pitchfork, Mm. which Mm. went really hard on Sigrid, to be honest. It Mm -hmm. wasn't kind, but it was really interested in how to let go is the album. It was really interested in how that music functions, right? There's this, the Mm. the lead is there's a certain kind of pop song that plays at gay clubs that you don't really hear anywhere anymore. You know, the type punchy, vaguely European, empowering in a totally uncomplicated way. Songs like Ava Max's My Head and My Heart or Rita Ora's Bang Bang. Good enough to dance mm-hmm. to and catchy enough to sing along with, but which mostly served to fill time between dancing on my own and stronger. Right? Like mm-hmm. that is a critique of pop music that takes pop music seriously. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. But I don't know if people would consider that statement poptimist. I think they probably would. I would. I would. I would consider that That's poptimism. a poptimist statement to me. But when I think of optimism right now, it mostly comes down to saying that pop music is good, which is not interesting and it's not true because no genre is inherently good. So is the issue less so that poptimism is useless and more so that poptimism has been corrupted as an idea, essentially? Like, are there elements of the sort of purest iteration of poptimism that still feel valuable to you if we weren't sort of misusing it, I guess? 
Yeah, but it kind of sounds like an obvious statement now. Like if you were to say to a reader of criticism now, like, oh, well, the problem with criticism is that it doesn't take pop music seriously. They'd be like, Beyonce topped every year endless last year. Like there <laughs> are like... That yeah. is just right. Cool. Like it's outlived. It's useless. It's done its job. Is that 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 yeah. I would say is an example of it having done its job. Yeah, but it still exists as this kind of like controversial figure in the criticism world because a version of it exists and is asking something of critics that shouldn't be mm -hmm. asked. And I also think that like when you look at Wilson's point from the beginning, it was that people should engage with music that they don't necessarily like, which I think right. is true for sure and i think that that's something that that's that that's useful and that's what he was trying to do with celine but i also think that engaging with music that you don't like doesn't really happen anymore because music has gotten so niche in the streaming era that asking people to engage with music that they don't listen like critics to engage with music that they don't know well typically leads to people considering those reviews uninformed. Right. There needs to be more of a critical lens placed on some of these major pop records in particular. Like, I'll be so interested to see, like, if we can sort of come to a place of evolution in terms of, like, how we're interfacing with Taylor Swift's music, how we're interfacing with Beyonce's music. I mean, look, Beyonce's records to me have been fairly garnered their reigns, yeah. right? But, like, I think you were so right about Midnight's to me. You know, Rob Harvilla wrote that amazing piece about reputation and, you know, that being sort of an end point for, for Poptimism. But I think Midnight's is actually a more apt kind of example of what you were talking about. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up. That seems to be the biggest issue that we're dealing with at the moment with all of this. Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to downplay like the idea that Poptimism hasn't fully run its course. Like I think that when you look at, to bring it back to Celine, when you look at the Rolling Stone singers list, that existed right. recently, not including Celine as like a classic raucous move. But what right. I would also yeah. note about that is that it was received not in a way like the, the not including Celine Dion on your top singers list was not received as like, oh, those critics, they like consider her music schmaltzy. It was received with abject confusion by everyone on Twitter. Like people couldn't understand why they did it. What it was was a throwback to like a pre Wilson era where Celine Dion was considered like schmaltzy, schmaltzy, schmaltzy. I can't say that word. Schmaltzy. I'm Jewish. <laughs> and then like kitschy and tacky, basically. Yeah. It read to me as a throwback to that era, but it wasn't received in that way because people don't understand criticism in that way anymore. Like critics are not perceived as hating Celine Dion anymore inherently or hating pop music inherently anymore. And so it was like, did you forget? Like that was what yeah. was <laughs> what seemed to be there for me in the, in the reception to that. So I, I think there in a lot of ways... When you see like old school rockism come up like that, people are now wildly confused by it. Like it just doesn't exist in our standards anymore. And mm -hmm. we have more pressing issues than rockism. Like we have the stand culture that you mentioned, like that's yeah. a really big issue. We have- That's a big issue. Yeah, that's a real big issue. <laughs> we have issues yeah. like that, which are more pressing at the moment than rockism is. Because rockism, mm -hmm. when you see a pure rockist move like that, it immediately gets slapped down. Like people are like, yeah. we don't want that. Like that doesn't make any sense to us. That doesn't exist on our metric anymore. Like your mm -hmm. move doesn't even register as something that could be thought anymore. And now I think that it's much more worthwhile to talk about people being doxxed. It's not really yeah. a relevant issue. And that's what I was trying to get at with my yeah. piece at the time is that optimism seems to only be discoursed because it's what we discourse about in music criticism. Right.
it is right. not discoursed about because there is something relevant that happened with it. So interesting. So my last question for you is, what is like a quote unquote, as you call it, perfect pop song of the Poptimism era? Like one of your favorites, even if it's annoying the way that it's been called that, that we could send the show out on? I mean, I think that based on our conversation, I think the answer has to be the song Teenage Dream. Pretty much the best example of what you're talking about that could be possible. It's a perfect pop song. It's a perfect pop song, Jason. It's a perfect pop song. That's a perfect pop song. All right, so let's go out on Teenage Dream. Jason P. Frank, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be. Yeah.